Genesis chapter 25 is where we are this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. And I've asked Annie White to read that scripture for us. Genesis 25, 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Laumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ether, Hanach, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the first of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massah, Hadad, Tema, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Thanks, Annie. And if you think that I asked her to read that passage because of those names... Shame on you. (laughs) I was only 10, but I remember the funeral for my maternal grandfather, Bill Ballard. I remember who was there, uh, my mom and my dad and my brother. Uh, My aunt and uncle and my cousins were there. The... uh, uh, mustachioed George Bleck was there with his uh, customary beret chomping on his cigar, which he was uh, known to do. George Bleck was a longtime employee of my grandfather's. I remember all of us gathering around the grave into which my grandfather would be lowered along with my late grandmother. I remember the pastor telling a story about how my grandfather dropped out of school in eighth grade and soon thereafter affixed to his bedroom door a sign that read, W.T. Ballard, office. 
I remember coming home after the funeral with my whole family and all of us having a meal. And then I remember my cousins and I walking around the block after dinner and going by my elementary school, the playground, in fact, where all my friends were on the other side, incredulously looking at me walking by during school hours. And I remember feeling pretty proud at that moment. I remember those things. But it wasn't until I cracked the passage for today's sermon that I ever reflected on those things. I had never reflected on my grandfather's death. I had never thoughtfully looked back at his life in total and considered it. Well, how did that happen? Well, it happened when I began noticing and listing a number of similarities between Abraham and my grandfather. Now, they weren't of any great substance. Uh, they entirely superficial, but I just began to write them down. Here are some of them. The first one being, Abraham and my grandfather were buried a long way from the place at which they were born. Abraham was born in present-day Iraq and was buried 1,500 miles away in a cave in modern-day Israel. My grandfather was born on Vancouver Island, 1,200 miles away from the ground in which he would be buried here in Southern California. Abraham and my grandfather were buried in entirely different settings than the ones in which they grew up. Abraham was raised in the desert of Ur, and he was buried amidst the oaks of Mamre. My grandfather was reared on a rural dairy farm outside of Victoria, and he was buried in an urban cemetery about five and a half miles from LAX. Abraham and my grandfather were raised on popular religion. Uh, Abraham was born into, into a garden variety, moon-worshiping Chaldean family. My grandfather was born into a church-going Canadian family at a time when the denomination to which they belong declared, and I quote, that it was laying the foundation of empire, that is the British Empire, in righteousness and truth on Canada's western frontier. Well, being raised uh, in pop religion means that Abraham and my grandfather didn't come to faith in the God of the Bible until they were adults, in fact, later in life. Abraham and my grandfather also faced the pressure of living as aliens. Uh, Abraham doing so in a defensive posture. Uh, we saw that as he infamously uh, uh, sojourned down in Egypt back in chapter 12 and then again in Gerar. Uh, in chapter 20, my grandfather uh, doing so is the bearer of a green card, compelling him to become a United States citizen along with my grandmother and my uncle and my then teenage mother. In fact, I recently uncovered a piece of correspondence that was written by his employer back in the 40s that um, as I began to tease this out, I realized uh, recorded the difficulties that my grandfather was having as a foreigner doing business here in the United States. 
Abraham and my grandfather lived long lives. Uh, Abraham lived to be 175 years old. (laughs) Enough said. My grandfather, I'll just put it to you like this. He was born in the Victorian era before the invention of the airplane, and he died in the space age after men had set foot on the moon. Looking back over their two lives, I can say at least these couple of things. First of all, God blessed them in their times. He blessed them in their times. But not only that, God continued to bless others through them over the course of time. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean my daughters are the fourth generation to live in the house that my grandfather purchased all the way back in 1959. I would say that's an enduring blessing. But consider this. The church of Jesus Christ represents the current generation of God's family to live in a household that was established by him all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. That's an especially enduring blessing. And that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to see that a faithful life leads to enduring blessings. And that should give you, as the old hymn goes, strength for today knowing that neither your faith nor your faith in action is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 58. It should also give you bright hope for tomorrow, knowing that even after you're gone, the Lord is going to continue to remember you and your good works on his behalf, Revelation 14, 13, as well as your family and your friends who follow in your faithful example, Psalm 103, 16 through 18. A faithful life leads to enduring blessings. Once again, that's the direction in which we're going this morning, but before we head there, it's worth noting that uh, uh, we are at a major crossroad this morning in the book of Genesis in terms of its literary structure. Uh, we find ourselves at a place where a couple of the, the tectonic plates, as it were, that make up this book butt up against each other. Uh, Genesis is divided into 10 sections. Uh, the one at which we've been looking, uh, named after Abraham's father, Terah, which is strangely all about Abraham, but nonetheless, that's how it's known, is the longest. And that's why we've been looking at it since January 7th. The next section at which we're going to look is named after Abraham's son, Ishmael. And it's the shortest of those 10 sections in Genesis, and we'll dispense with that in just a few words this morning. So... um, You know, since I'm talking about schedule, I want to just say again, uh, mention what Kenny did about next week's reflection service. I hope that over these last 10 weeks, there have been things that have edified you and encouraged you and that you'll come with next week to edify and encourage others. Uh, Then we move into Palm Sunday and then Easter and then a little four-week series that Kenny mentioned. And then on May 5th, we're going to return to Genesis and we'll begin the Isaac story And that'll take us up to the end of July, and that's pretty much the schedule between now and almost the end of summer. 
But this morning we're here in Genesis 25 and we're noticing that a faithful life leads to enduring blessings. And we're going to look at that by noticing these three things. First of all, a faithful life is not a perfect life. A faithful life is not a perfect life. Second, a faithful life is a jealous life. It's a jealous life. And finally, thirdly, a faithful life leads to enduring blessings. So let's first notice that a faithful life is not a perfect life. Following Sarah's death, um, Isaac was comforted by marrying Rebekah. And uh, Kenny showed us that masterfully uh, last week as he uh, took us through Genesis chapter 24. Abraham presumably found the same when he married Keturah. We see that there in verse number one. So Abraham comes to the end of his life. He has eight sons. His oldest is Ishmael. He's now 87 years old, and his mother was Hagar. Isaac is now 75 years old. His mother was Sarah. And then you have these six other sons that are listed there in verse number two, whose mother was Keturah. So right up to the end of his life, God continues to bless Abraham. Now that's not to say that Abraham nor his family were perfect, because they weren't. Consider the offspring of Midian, one of those sons mentioned in verse number two, who on the one hand uh, blessed God's people by providing Moses with a wife and a very wise father-in-law, but who on the other hand later profaned them by drawing them into epic immorality, Numbers 23 through 25, and then abject poverty, Judges chapter 6. Consider, too, uh, the offspring of Abraham's son Ishmael, who, according to God's promise, did, in fact, become an innumerable people, chapter 16, verse 10, and a great nation, chapter 21, verse 18, but whose life and legacy were sealed with the words contained in verse 18, Ishmael settled over against all of his kinsmen. They were a pain in the neck. They always presented God's people with problems. They did then, they've done down through history, and they continue to do so today. So, even though Abraham's family was a blessed family, it doesn't mean that they were perfect. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Because none of us come from a perfect family. Every family has its member or members who test the limits, uh, who resist convention, who reject authority. I'm sure you may have that person in your mind right now. You may be that person. I was that person at one time. Admitting it doesn't excuse it, but it does remind us that sin pervades even the godliest of families. A friend of mine had two boys. Well, he still has two boys. They're now grown men. But I remember when they were boys... And the one boy couldn't do enough good. He was a poster child 
for goodness. And then there was the other son. And he gave his dad every reason to lay awake in bed at night. And I can remember having lunch with their father one day and him saying to me something like this. When I feel like taking credit for uh, uh, the one son's compliance, I remind myself of the other son's rebellion and wonder how these two boys who were raised under the same roof, uh, raised by the same rules, could turn out to be so different. Could there have been a better dad than Father Abraham? I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 paints him out to be the paragon of godliness. Uh, And while he no doubt raised all of his sons with the same degree of love and care, they didn't all turn out the same, did they? No. But the test of a man's character can often be seen in how his family responds at the time of his death. Some come together. Others splinter apart. I saw this time and again during my days as a funeral director, especially among blended families like Abraham's, where the casket became a place of either uniting or dividing, and sometimes dividing that was so great that you had to pull people apart and get them into separate rooms and keep them there because they just couldn't be together. And so that's why I find after all the drama at which we've looked over the last 10 weeks, we come to verses 9 and 10 and we see that Abraham was buried by Isaac and Ishmael. They gathered round. They came together to bury their dad in the family mausoleum that he purchased and in which Sarah was already entombed. There's a grace note at the end of Abraham's life. Played again when rivaling brothers Jacob and Esau come together and bury their father Isaac in that same place. And played again when all 12 of Jacob's sons bury him there as well. A faithful life is not a perfect life, but for Abraham, it was a blessed life right up to the end. The next thing that we notice is that a faithful life is a jealous life. It's a jealous life. What does that even mean? Well, we see that Abraham, throughout the course of his life, jealously guarded the covenant that was made with him by God back in chapter 12, reconfirmed in chapter 15, and then celebrated with laughter and wonder upon Isaac's birth back in chapter 21. Abraham's jealous guardianship of the covenant shaped his last recorded words or his last recorded act, I should say, that's contained for us here in verses 5 and 6, where to Isaac, he gave everything. Everything. Isaac got it all. Well, to the rest of his sons, he gave gifts. Now, no doubt, they were handsome gifts. They were probably eye-popping gifts. They were gifts that any of us would be happy to receive, but they were gifts. And then he sent them away. He sent his boys away in order to eliminate any threat to the son 
a promise. And to be sure, sending his sons away was not an easy thing to do. I can't imagine that it was for Abraham, but it was the wise thing to do. And wisdom was something that Abraham, we've seen this, has found in short supply, but it was something to which he always returned. Jealously guarding God's word has always been a challenge for his people. We see that here in the Old Testament. This is why when God's word was recorded, he placed a great degree of stress on remembering his word and not forgetting his word. So we read, remember what you were without God. It's all in here, Deuteronomy 5. Remember what was done for you by God. It's all in here, Deuteronomy 7. Remember to remain holy to God and obedient to his commandments. It's all in here since they are no empty word for you but your very life. Deuteronomy 32. That's God's positive encouragement to remember his words. His positive encouragement. But he also exhorts his people to not forget. Don't forget. Don't forget the salvation that God provided for you, the promise God made to you. Don't forget these things or you will die. That's God's negative encouragement. Don't forget his word, Deuteronomy 4 and 8. Blessing God by jealously guarding his word was not only a challenge for those who lived back in Old Covenant days, but for us who live in New Covenant days. And so we see this theme playing right on in to the New Testament. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, remember, God supports you. You don't support God. Romans 11, 17 through 19. To the church at Ephesus, remember your former sin and God's great salvation. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. And then James and Peter and Jude wrote to their respective audiences, Remember and don't forget God's word. That is something to which we are inclined. That is something to which we are inclined every day. That is something to which we are all inclined, even since we walked into this building this morning. And jealously guarding God's word is just as important for an entire church as single individuals. This is why throughout the New Testament, a great deal of jealous attention is paid to the integrity, not only of the word, but the character of the one who delivers it. And this is especially true of Paul in his letters to Timothy and Titus, and Peter in his second letter, as well as John and Jude in their respective letters. In fact, I find it really interesting that of all the things that these fellows could write about, you would think it, it, it would be about all the blatant evils in this world. Stay away from those things. But I believe that that's also obvious to us that what they really camp on is the importance of holding fast to the word as it was delivered and the integrity of those who deliver it. That's something I appreciate about grace. I really appreciate that about grace and the men who stand 
here at this pulpit. The effort to keep from adding to Scripture and thereby moving us into the camp of legalism or taking away from Scripture and moving us into the realm of liberalism but jealously holding fast to the line of Scripture and thereby preventing us from moving from a God-centered gospel to a human-centered one which is no gospel at all. So we've seen how a faithful life is not a perfect life. A faithful life is a jealous life. And finally, we're going to take a look at how a faithful life leads to enduring blessings. And we first notice this in verse 11 where we read, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And that happens again. It happens again when after the death of Isaac, we read in, in 35.9, God blessed Jacob, also known, as, also known as Israel, Abraham's grandson. And then again, when God blessed the sons of Israel, Abraham's great-grandsons, Deuteronomy 33:11. All of these blessings are connected to that initial blessing all the way back in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But here's the thing that's really neat. This blessing wasn't just for Isaac's family. No, it's spread out beyond that. Remember those, remember those sons that were sent away? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 60, verses 6 and 7, that those sons returned. They returned to the place from which they had been sent. And when they came back, they came bearing gifts and goodwill and the blessing. Derek Kidner, who is uh, a master at uh, economy, put it succinctly and beautifully like this. In God's plan, these sons were sent away that there might be a true home in the end to return to. How beautiful. But the blessings of faithful Abraham were not only extended to his blood relatives, but to those who come under the blood of him by whom the promise of Abraham was fulfilled. Galatians 3.29 makes it clear that if you are Christ's, then you too are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Just as Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, his son of promise, so God the Father gives all that he has to those who come to Jesus, his son of promise. And in the way that Abraham's faithful life led to enduring blessings for himself all the way to the end, and then his posterity as well, beyond his years, so we can hope for the same. Consider the faithful preaching ministry of the Puritan John Flavel. Flavel is preaching a sermon on any other Sunday, and it's heard by a man named Luke Short. Subsequent to the sermon, uh, Short is living in Virginia. He's sitting under a hedge, uh, presumably on a hot day, and he's thinking about this sermon that Flavel had preached. And he's convicted by it. And he gives his heart to Christ. Here's what's interesting about this story. Remarkable, in fact. Three years after coming to faith, Short died. 
He died at the age of 106, which means that he was 103 as he sat under the hedge thinking about that sermon. In fact, on his grave marker uh, are etched these words. Here lies a babe in Christ aged three years who died according to nature at age 106. But here's what's especially remarkable, remarkable about that sermon. That sermon on which Short was meditating and led to his salvation. It was preached by Flavel 85 years before, over in England. But it didn't come together for him until all those decades later. A faithful life led to enduring blessings long after an imperfect John Flavel had preached with jealous faithfulness God's word. Consider the prayer ministry of social reformer George Mueller, who wrote the following in his diary. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. Thirty-six years later, Mueller noted that these two remaining men had not yet been saved. And so he wrote the following words. I hope in God, I pray on, I look for the answer. They're not yet converted, but they will be. Fifty-two years after commencing to pray for these two men, they came to faith. Two years after Mueller had died, a faithful life led to enduring blessings even after the imperfect George Mueller jealously, jealously prayed God's promises over these two men. In the 1830s and near the end of his uh, prolific ministry in Cambridge, 54 years at the same church, uh, Charles Simeon saw some members of his congregation form a little Sunday school for indigents who were living on the edge of town. Out of that ministry, there was formed what was called a daily prayer meeting that was comprised of Cambridge University students. Out of that daily prayer meeting came a movement among Christians at Cambridge that made its way up to Oxford and joined together to form InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which later uh, had great influence on two of the great preachers of the last century, one of whom is actually still alive and preaching. One was John Stott. He's since gone on to his reward. The other is Dick Lucas, who at 93, and I can guarantee you somewhere this morning, is out preaching the gospel. But Lucas formed uh, what's called the Proclamation Trust at the center of which is a Bible-teaching workshop based on this model that was used by Simeon. 
Well, some Americans caught on to this, formed the Charles Simeon Trust, and began doing the same thing across the United States and around the world in multiple languages. In fact, just two weeks ago, a Spanish language workshop was attended by two of our La Gracia elders, uh, 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 Marcus, uh, Marcos uh, Velasco and Angel Galan. A faithful life led to enduring blessings, even for our own congregation, 182 years after a jealous Simeon preached and prayed the word over his congregation. A faithful life may not turn out exactly, exactly like you thought it would. Uh, Abraham's family wasn't perfect and neither is yours. A faithful life may require more spiritual sweat than you could have imagined. But a faithful life, by God's grace, leads to enduring blessings for you and through you to others now and even beyond your own lifetime. Let's pray. And as we do, I want you to recall the name of that person whom you thought of earlier in the service that is a great burden for you. I have a person in my mind. That person may be yourself. Would you pray like Abraham did for his family? Would you pray for that one and pray that God would would bless them today with clarity with, with the hope of the gospel, with a, a transformed heart, and if not now, in time. Let's pray silently for that one. Lord, it's true that your word is a time-activated commodity. You use it as you will and when you will. And all of us here today, Lord, we confess are recipients of a promise that was made to a man millennia ago. We're beneficiaries of that promise. We are grateful for the one by whom it was fulfilled, Jesus Christ, and the salvation that we enjoy, the freedom from sin, the power that we have in this life and the life beyond. And Lord, we jealously guard that and pray its blessing on behalf of others. Others who are struggling, even in our own families. Others who need to hear this good news within our community. Those who need to hear it around the world. So hear our prayer, we pray. We leave it with you. We'll forget it once we leave this place, but you won't. We're grateful that you will attend to these prayers and see them through to their perfect completion. We leave them with you in the name of your Son and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.